you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54, and that will be our text for today. As you're turning there, imagine, just picture in your mind, if you will, standing in the middle of a dry riverbed. It used to be a flowing river, but there's, there's nothing there. And imagine you kind of are wondering what's keeping these waters from flowing. So you start to walk down the middle of that riverbank, heading up towards where the water should be flowing from. And as you, you head up this dry stream, you discover that there's a, a blockage, there's a, a dam that's keeping the water from flowing into this riverbed, which means that if there was a way to remove that blockage, if you could get rid of that dam, then the water would flow through this dry riverbed. But you can't do it. There's no way to remove this obstruction by yourself. Isaiah 48, 18, God tells Judah that if they had paid attention to him, if they would have listened to him, then their peace would have been like a river. But they didn't listen. And, and their sin kept them from walking in the ways of the Lord. So the, the river of peace before them was, was dry. They had no peace. Just as we have no peace when we're separated from the Lord and we sinfully refuse to listen to him. Peace in scripture is not simply a sense of quiet or calm like we often think of. The Hebrew word is one that we maybe one of the few Hebrew words that you might know, it's shalom. Um, and as we've said before in sermons, it carries this idea of peace or restitution between warring parties. It's the peace that a, a treaty would bring, but also the peace that, that offerings and sacrifices would bring in the temple. Ideas like atonement and reconciliation and redemption are bound up in this, this word shalom, where there was formerly separation, there is now a union, there is peace. So in the most basic sense, sin is what blocks up the river of God's peace. Our, our rebellion against the Lord breaks our relationship with our creator and it keeps us from knowing this overflowing sense of shalom and of, of well-being and goodness and peace in our lives. And there's no way that we can get rid of this, this dam of sin on our own. But in the fourth servant song of Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, the dam that keeps the river of peace from flowing into our lives has been removed. It's not been removed by us. It's been removed by the servant. We're told that the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And because of the work of Jesus, the dam of sin is removed and the peace and the blessings of God flood into our lives, flood into the lives of the people of God and even into the whole world. The suffering of the servant then is both the work of redemption and reconciliation that removes this dam that holds, holds back God's overwhelming peace, but it is also the ultimate source of God's blessing to his people who turn to him in repentance and faith. In fact, Barry Webb makes a good case for these chapters showing that the work of the servant that brings the fulfillment of all of the major covenants of the Old Testament. It brings fulfillment to the Abrahamic covenant. It brings fulfillment of the covenant at Sinai, the covenant with Noah, the covenant of Eden, and the covenant of 
uh, with David. The servant's work is the work of the new covenant. It's the work of this greater covenant that brings peace. In the words of Paul, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And chapters 54 and 55 call us to rejoice in all of the glorious promises that Christ has purchased through his blood. They, they describe for us the river that flows from what Christ has done. And so let's state our big idea like this with some familiar words that we've used for our big ideas in the past, but that's okay. Here's our big idea. Sing for joy. Sing for joy at the peace our promise-keeping God has brought us through the suffering of the servant. I'll say it again. Sing for joy at the peace, the peace our promise-keeping God has brought us. And how has he brought it to us? Through the suffering of the servant. If you remember, if you've been with us and we, as we've studied these four servant songs, it's, the pattern is of a servant song that's followed by a divinely inspired commentary on the song. And the commentary on the fourth song is found in both chapters 54 and 55. The fourth song is the longest song and the commentary is the longest commentary. Chapters 54 and 55, they, they conclude this second major section of Isaiah too, and they conclude it on this high note that leads into the rest of the book of Isaiah that highlights the Messiah as the anointed conqueror. And in chapter 54, we see the blessings that flow into Zion from the servant's work. And then in chapter 55, the, the focus turns to the world, though in fact, it's kind of blurred between these two songs. There's no hard line between Zion and the, wor and the world at this point. And what bookends both of these chapters, if you look at the beginning of chapter 54 and the end of chapter 55, what, what begins and ends these two chapters is singing and rejoicing. And so this commentary is a call for all of us who long for peace, for all of us who want shalom and, and the grace of God in our lives. It says, sing for joy. Sing for joy at the peace our promise-keeping God has brought us through the suffering of the servant. With that in mind, let's read Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse one. God's word says to us, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is, cut, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. 
This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Verse 11, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Sing for joy at the peace our promise-keeping God has brought us through the suffering of the servant. I want to invite you to take a, a walk through this passage with me like the walk Ezekiel took from the south gate of the temple in Ezekiel 47. As he walked, there was a trickle of water flowing from the city that turned into an ankle-deep creek and then a knee-deep stream and then a waist-deep river and finally an overwhelming flood. And as we walk in the river that flows from the cross, of Jesus described in Isaiah 53, we will find that the depths of his suffering are matched only by the depths of the blessings that flow from it. In verses one through three, Isaiah tells us that because of the servant's suffering, the barren will be made fruitful. The barren will be made fruitful. The, the call to sing goes out to the barren, the childless, and the desolate one to those longing for children who have none. And they are to rejoice because they will be blessed with more offspring than the most fruitful of families. Those who had wept with longing for children would rejoice. Of course, Isaiah is not speaking to an actual woman, but to the nation of Israel, to, to those who, as they sat in exile, felt as if they would never know joy again and that they would never see the fulfillment of all of God's promises to them of being a great nation with numberless descendants. He speaks to us. He speaks to us as we wonder if the deepest longings of our hearts can ever be met. If we're ever going to know lasting joy and enduring peace. In this feeling of, of barrenness, the promise made to Abraham is brought before them. They're reminded, as in chapter 51, of the rock from which they were hewn. They see Ancient and barren Sarah laughing at the promise that she would bear a child. And then they see her laughing as she holds Isaac, the child of promise. They hear the prayer of barren Hannah as she rejoices at the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.5 and says, The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Judah is told that their hope will not die in Babylon. 
but new life will come to them and their offspring will increase so much that they're going to need to stretch out their tents even further. Imagine that you're scrolling through Amazon. You're looking at the website and you find a two-person tent, but there's something unique about this tent. It can be infinitely stretched. <laughs> as, as more and more people join the, the camping trip, all you have to do is pull up the stakes and, and stretch the covering a little bit further and there's room for the people that have joined the party. This is, this is what the tent of God's blessings in Jesus is like. The remnant in Babylon would return and they would grow. But even more so, the small group of disciples in Acts would proclaim salvation in Jesus' name and they would grow. And they would grow. <laughs> and they would grow to the point that the nations and the ends of the earth would be blessed by the peace of God's kingdom and brought underneath the ever-growing tent of God's blessings. It always stretches further. There's always room for more to come. The command to sing, as we see, dominates this chapter, but there's also another command. It's in verse two. Enlarge the place of your tent. It's not just the fact that it can be enlarged, but there's a command to enlarge it, to stretch out the stakes of your dwelling. Our, our rejoicing in the gospel is not something that's supposed to be done in private or only for our own good. Rather, our rejoicing in the blessings that flow from the work of Christ are a means by which the tent of the blessings of God is stretched, the tent of God's blessings is stretched wider and wider to include more and more people. Our rejoicing in what God has done should lead us to call others to rejoice with us, to know the freedom that's found underneath the tent of faith in Jesus. As I think about this, Jesus' parables in Luke 15 come to mind where the, the woman finds the lost coin and she calls her neighbors, come and rejoice with me. Just like the shepherd does with his sheep and just as the father does with his son. Sadly, often the, the spirit of the elder son at the end of those chapters is alive within us. We refuse to rejoice at the sinners who repent and believe and are welcomed into the tent of God's family. Or we keep our rejoicing to ourselves and, and fail to announce the good news of the servant's suffering to others. It was that spirit of the elder brother that William Carey, the father of, of modern missions, fought in his effort to take the gospel to the nations. Carey actually saw in these verses the call to tell others of this good news, to rejoice in a way that physically gets up and goes to tell other people when his desire to take the gospel to the nations was, was met with resistance, he preached a sermon from this text, from verses two and three of Isaiah 54, and summarized its missionary flavor with one of his most famous quotes. His outline of Isaiah 54, one through three is this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. The, the greatness of what God has done for us compels us to attempt great things for him, great things that spread his gospel and his fame to all people, great things that welcome all people under the tent of his gospel blessings. If we're going to enlarge our tents, we must do what Paul calls the Corinthians to do in 2 Corinthians 6. We have to enlarge our hearts. We have to be filled with a love, like the love that the Father had that has that rejoices not only over the not only over the sheep that are in the pen but over the ones who are wandering who, and who are far away 
a love for family and friends, a love for our coworkers, a love for the outcast and for the rejected, a love for the nations, a love for all people. David Jackman writes, one of the greatest glories of the gospel is the expanding family of God. Do we rejoice at the expanding family of God? We have to. Our rejoicing can't simply be over the fact that God has brought us into his family and welcomed us into his tent. But it has to be over the fact that there's room for anyone and everyone to come and find peace and joy and everlasting life in Christ. That there is hope for all people to be saved because the servant, servant's work means that the barren will be made fruitful. Next we see in verses 4 through 8, through 8 that the ashamed will be redeemed. The ashamed will be redeemed. God's people are told in verse 4 not to fear. Fear not. And, and what they appear to be afraid of is this, being ashamed and being disgraced. They fear that their future is going to be marked by shame, humiliation, and dishonor. And their fear of that is rooted in their past. The second part of the, of the verse, of verse four, speaks of, of the shame of their youth and their widowhood. And they're wondering, would the disgrace that they faced in the past mark their present? Would it mark their future? I think we can all look at our past and feel deep regret or embarrassment or, or shame over something that we've done. And sometimes that shame makes us wonder if our future is going to be marked by the same disgrace. Could God use someone like me after everything I've done? Can I ever change? Or has my past broken me beyond repair? We might look at the church as a whole and, and feel shame over what's been done in the name of Jesus. We might wonder if there's hope for our denomination. We might even look at our church and feel like our influence as a church is always gonna be small. There's no future for us. Well, we certainly don't know what the future holds for us as individuals, for us as a church. But we do know that those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, all of our shame is going to turn to glorious redemption. Whether in this life or in the next, full redemption is our future. And so we can have courage to attempt great things for God, knowing that shame and disgrace will never completely overwhelm us. We can expect great things from God, knowing that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all will also graciously give us everything else that we need. The image here is of, a, 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 is of God's people as a disgraced wife, a wife cast off by her husband. And if the first three verses re recalled the covenant with Abraham, then these recall the Sinai covenant. God had, if you remember, he brought his people out of slavery. He'd brought them to himself and he committed himself to them. Verse five is, is clear. Your maker is your husband. But we know throughout scripture that Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. And as a result, God's people felt God's judgment. They experienced his anger. They were estranged from him. And verse seven shockingly says they were deserted by him. We don't often hear stories of restored marriages. We don't often hear stories of couples on the edge of divorce being reconciled. But when it does happen, by the grace of God, it's a beautiful reminder of the gospel. Because the Lord is going to bring complete restoration to the separation that sin has caused. 
The Lord is a husband who will redeem and restore his estranged wife. And as with every blessing in this passage, where does the restoration flow from? It flows from the suffering servant's work. God can restore his people because Jesus took on our shame and our confusion. Jesus, who was disgraced and despised and rejected for us, just as Israel was and just as we are in our sin. He was oppressed and afflicted and bore the sins of many. But he was also vindicated in his resurrection and will be fully exalted. The work of Jesus assures us that the ashamed will be redeemed. And it assures us that as we walk the path from disgrace to glory, that we are walking in the ways of Jesus. The Lord tells us to fear not. Not because we won't face pain and sin and disgrace, but because it won't endure. I think this is borne out in the comparison of verse 7. It's, it's a comparison between a moment and eternity. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Verse 8, in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. A moment is brief. Eternity is forever. This is my tape measure. The longest tape measure I could find on Google was 330 feet. This one's only 25, but let's pretend it's 330 feet. <laughs> if it was 330 feet, you know what a moment would be? Depending on whether you're, you like metric or, or standard, it would either be a millimeter or you could say a sixteenth of an inch. So, you know, it's not, you can't even find the millimeter. This little metal part covers it up. But that's a moment. And then eternity would be as if I just started, like, stretching it out all over. That's, that's the difference between a moment and eternity. And let's pretend 330 feet, but not even just 330 feet. It's as if the tape measure just keeps going. And the moment is just that millimeter. The Lord says of his anger that it's for a moment. It's for a moment. It's, it's real. It's there. It's, it's painful. But it's not what endures. What endures is God's compassion. His comfort and his goodness and his love are eternally set on his people. And for we who are in Christ, Jesus has endured the anger of God on our behalf. In a moment of time, he took on an eternity of judgment so that we could be freed from God's wrath and know his compassion forever. Our future is not one that will be filled with shame and disgrace. It will be filled with redemption and rejoicing. We have the hope of eternal blessing. But we can also know right now that the Lord is for us. There's a group called Mission House that I've been listening to a lot. They really help me remember what's true. And they sing this in, in one of their songs. They say, in our darkest hours, on our hardest days, we do not have to be afraid for you will never leave. You will not forsake the promises you have made and we will never see the end of your goodness. We will never see the end of God's goodness. Psalm 30, verses 4 through 5, we read in our call to worship. They call us to rejoice in this reality as we face difficulty and pain in this life. They say to us that we who fear our lives will end in disgrace and shame. 
We who fear that our past is going to haunt us into the present, that, that those things, they only last a moment in the light of God's comfort. So brothers and sisters who hope in the Lord, listen to this again from Psalm 30. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Why? For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Tied closely to the fact that the ashamed will be redeemed is the, the truth of verses 9 and 10, which is probably lumped into that section, but let me, let's make it a separate point. It's this, the sinful will be saved, verses 9 and 10. The sinful will be saved. From the covenant with Abraham to the, the covenant at Sinai, we now come to the covenant with Noah and with the whole earth. And in many ways, this is just a further reminder that God's wrath is for a moment, but his favor is for eternity. Because God's wrath is on full display in the flood as he destroys the wicked off the face of the earth. But his mercy is on full display too as he rescues Noah and his family and then as he swears never again to destroy the earth with the flood. Because if God wanted to destroy the earth again with the flood, he could have done it very soon after the waters abated. If you just looked a little bit further down in what Jake read for our scripture reading, Noah is drunk and his son is completely wicked, they reveal that the problem of sin has not been solved through the flood because rebellion is still in the hearts of mankind. But God makes a promise to sinful humanity. He swears that his steadfast love would never depart and his compassion would never end. His promise was not based on Noah or any other sinful human being, but he swore by himself and even the sign of the rainbow points forward to the fact that he alone can bring redemption. The rainbow reminds us of God's war bow. I'm just going to quote extensively from Sinclair Ferguson because he explains this really well. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says of the God's war bow. He says, it's a picture of God after hostility has ended and he has established his new creation, flinging his bow of war his bow of judgment into the skies as a reassurance to Noah. Now, God says, that there is reconciliation. You may enjoy the peace that you have with me. You can be sure that there will never again be this kind of judgment on the earth until, of course, the cosmic final judgment of all at the end of time. And so Noah begins to enjoy the fruit and the spoils of war. Ferguson goes on. Some scholars have even suggested over the centuries, if you think about the rainbow as God's military bow, transformed into an ornament of great beauty, that hostility has ceased and that there is no arrow in the bow. That if he has thrown the bow into the sky that way, the only place the arrow could have gone was into his own heart. I wonder if Noah ever could have pondered, if God has thrown his bow into the sky, where is his arrow? And why does it point thus heavenward into his heart? And of course, the rest of the story of the Bible will pick up on that idea. It's only as God takes the judgment to himself into his son, Jesus Christ, that we might enjoy full and final reconciliation with him. The rainbow is just not a pretty thing in the sky. It reminds us that God has taken our judgment on himself. God in Christ has done just that that the sinful are saved because the servant has suffered and died. 
And therefore, those who come in repentance and faith are promised that the mountains and the hills will disappear before God will break his covenant of love, his covenant of peace, his covenant of compassion towards his children. Faith in Christ means that our future is not one of judgment. Our future is one of peace and everlasting joy. And all of this points forward to a secure future and a secure dwelling place. So in verses 11 through 17, finally, we see that the storm-tossed will be eternally secure. The storm-tossed will be eternally secure. The opening phrase of verse 11 is poignant as God addresses the afflicted, the storm-tossed, and those who are not comforted. You ever feel that way? Afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted? We might envision a sailor at sea for months on end. And as he faces storms and hurricanes, his, his life just feels constantly under threat of death. There's, there's no time for rest. There's no time for comfort. Every day is a fight against the elements. And then he returns home. And he arrives on dry ground goes to his warm house with a roof over his head and the house doesn't move or rock at all. He's no longer storm-tossed. He's secure. He's resting. He's joyful. Storm-tossed. I, I feel like that sometimes. That's what life feels like sometimes, doesn't it? That's what life felt like to me yesterday. <laughs> you ever have one of those days where everything just seems to go sideways and you think like the world is out to get you? I literally told Jordan, looked at the calendar to see if it was a full moon because it just felt like everything was going crazy. Nothing tragic, just frustrating to the point that at the end of the day, you feel like you just weathered a huge storm. Even for all our blessings, sometimes life is full of affliction. It's, it's full of pain and this just little comfort. And into all of this, we're given the hope of an eternal city, a safe harbor, you might say, a, a home that shields us from all the storms of life, and it's the new Jerusalem. Judah would be taken out of exile, they would be taken back into the land, so surely this looks forward to that reality of going back to Jerusalem, but this city is, is greater than Jerusalem ever was. I listened to a sermon by a man named Jamie Child this week, and I like the way he outlined these verses. He said that this city will be marked by three things, abundant prosperity, perfect righteousness, and total security abundant prosperity, perfect righteousness, total security. We see the abundant prosperity and the precious stones and the jewels that adorn this city. The idea is that, that the riches of this place are so great and so lavish that the buildings are made with priceless jewels, similar, similar to the way that the girl in Paul Simon's song wears diamonds on the soles of her shoes because she's so rich. <laughs> John borrows this description in Revelation, as he describes the new Jerusalem, the prosperity of this city is also seen in, in the way that the children are taught by the Lord. It might be disappointing. It sounds like there might be school in the new Jerusalem. For those of you that were thinking there wouldn't be school, it sounds like maybe there is. But here in this school, the children are taught by the Lord. And the school, uh, according to, um, to verse 13, is full of peace perfect instruction from the Lord himself, no fear, no fights, no disruptions, no lockdowns, beautiful peace and perfect instruction. 
abundant prosperity, but also perfect righteousness. That's probably tied to the Lord's teaching, but it's also in verse 14. Unrighteous Israel and unrighteous us, we will be made perfect through God's righteousness. There will be no more sin, no more impurity, no more backsliding in our hearts. Perfect righteousness will mark this city. This city will have a crime rate of zero. And then total security. If evil comes, the Lord says it's not from him. But he also says that that he created and he controls all things, including the evildoers and the weapons that they make. So what does that mean? Well, I think the point seems to be that the Lord is sovereign over all evil while also not being the cause of it. And in the last day, in the perfect Jerusalem, he's going to keep all evil outside of its gates. And he can do that because he's sovereign over all of it. No weapons will succeed against us in that city. There will be no fear of war. There will be no fear of the simple things that we are afraid of in this life. There's no fear of going to the, to the grocery store. There's no fear of standing on a street corner waiting for a bus. Swords. There's no use for them anymore, so we turn them into plows. Guns are going to be gardening tools. And no accusations will stick to the redeemed of the Lord. From afflicted and storm-tossed and not comforted to eternally secure in an unshakable city, a city of prosperity and righteousness and security. This, says verse 17, is our heritage. That's what it says at the end there. This is the heritage of the Lord. This is what he gives to us. The, the, the Lord provides us, it's as if we're written into the Lord's will. <laughs> and because Christ has died, our inheritance is all of this. All of this is, inheritance is ours if we trust in the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. So that's why, when you think about all of this together, that's why we say, sing for joy. Sing for joy at all of the peace our promise-keeping God has brought us through the suffering of the servant. The barren are made fruitful. No, no matter how beyond hope you feel, you will be filled with joy for eternity if you trust the Lord. The ashamed are redeemed. No matter how disgraced you feel, the Lord has been disgraced so that you can be loved forever. The sinful are saved. God has taken your punishment and the mountains will be moved before he ever forsakes you. And the storm-tossed are eternally secure. Our homesickness is for heaven and the Lord one day is going to take us to be with himself for all eternity. Sing for joy. We celebrate so many things in this life, don't we? I want to invite you maybe in some practical way to find a way to just celebrate the redemption that God has brought you this week. We celebrate with meals. Maybe you just make a great meal this week and say this meal is in celebration for what God has done for us. Maybe you just raise a toast around dinner tonight and say praise God that he has brought salvation to us. I don't know what you do to celebrate, but find a practical way to celebrate the, most, the thing that's most worth celebrating in this life that Christ has redeemed us, that he offers us hope that we who are barren can be fruitful, that we who are ashamed can be redeemed, that we who are sinful can be saved, and that we that are storm-tossed will one day be eternally 
secure. Find a way to sing about it and to celebrate it this week. It's an invitation, brothers and sisters, to swim and splash with joy in the river of peace that has been let loose by the work that Jesus has done for us. So let the truth of what God has done and what he will do wash over you and soak you and then shape you so that who you are and what you do is driven by the fact of the blessings that flow from what Christ has done. And then call others to join you, to join you in the overwhelming flood and the ever-expanding tent of the blessings that are ours through what Christ has done. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then we're going to sing together. But let's take a moment to, to allow God's word to penetrate our hearts. Father, we confess that we get so excited about things that are so much smaller than what you have done for us in Christ. So help us, Lord. Would you tune our hearts to sing your praise? Would you help us to to truly rejoice at what Christ has done, even in the midst of all the pain and the suffering and the difficulty and the affliction and the storm-tossedness of this life? Would you help us to, to see the glory of the gospel? to taste the the fruits and the goodness of what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, help us to press down deep into all of these beautiful illustrations and then to invite others to join us in the river of blessings that has been let loose by the suffering of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus, the word made flesh who has suffered for our sakes. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.